Welcome to Hiraith, a home for the left in Wales. You join us tonight on the Hiraith pod, where we're discussing the concept of independence in Scotland and Wales, where we ask the question, if not now, when? Uh, our guests tonight are Ben Gwachmai, the co-founder of Labour for an Independent Wales. Hello, Ben. Hello, Shumai. Shumai. Uh, we also joined by Ellen Howell, uh, who's on the Yes Cymru Central Committee. Hello, Ellen. Hello. And we're also joined by Professor Ailsa Henderson, who is the Professor of Political Science at the University of Edinburgh. Hello there. Hello. The first question I really wanted to ask is looking at the uh, elections in the Senate and the Scottish Parliament next year. Are these elections de facto referendums on independence? Yeah, it's a difficult one. After the after the 2019 UK election, I would have said yes, absolutely. The the 2021 devolved elections in Scotland will primarily be about who has a mandate. Um, is it a mandate to hold another independence referendum or a mandate to say no? There's there's definitely no public appetite for that, and we we know that certainly. Seeking that mandate will be important for the SNP. They will be reassured if they get more than 50% of the votes or seats. And I'm I'm certain that probably 52% is a bit of a target. I, th- I think there's other stuff going on. Uh, there always would have been other stuff going on. It's a government that's been in power in minority or majority form for more than a decade. And there's a whole list of, if not policy failures, then at least obvious policy weaknesses. So there will be efforts in addition to talking about independence, there will be efforts to kind of talk up problems with educational attainment or the name persons legislation. University funding remains problematic. Funding of local authorities is problematic. And all of that would have been true until February. But I think now we're in a situation where we're also likely to see a large portion of that campaign dedicated to talk of economic recovery. And in fact, it could well be depending on what happens as lockdown continues and eases or maybe comes back again, but also depending on the kind of Brexit that we have, that we might actually be devoting far more attention to to economic recovery and wealth creation within the Scottish campaign than just on constitutional politics. I think we've got a little bit longer to go, but what we are doing is we're going there much faster than uh, we've seen in Scotland, for example, so that the support for independence in Wales is growing much faster. I think the challenges for us are that we do need to uh, reframe the idea of independence so that it's seen as a vehicle for change instead of a point to get to. And I think once we do that, once the people of Wales see that independence is our way of changing our country for the better, I think we'll have enough support behind us then. I think 2021 in Wales is not in the same constitutional place that it will be in either Scotland or Northern Ireland, because literally we have five months before the UK leaves the transition period of the EU. There will be what Cat Boyd of one of the radical independence movements in Scotland likes to call a moment of rupture. Now, in Scotland, I think that will have a far more constitutional reaching effect than it will be an election that feels like a referendum on their place in Britain. In Wales, however, I think something like 2026 would be far more in line with that simply because of the nature of our devolutionary process. You know, we only technically have now a parliament and the speed and the momentum of 
our indie Wales movement is fantastic, but I don't think either the campaigns or people themselves would be ready to say, right, that's it, next year, let's put it all in, all on the line. I don't think that's either where we're at in Wales or where we'd like to be. And I think what's really interesting is, is Brexit is going to cause Northern Ireland far more problems, far more of a constitutional question than I think anybody else. Do you think it's fair to say that independence in Wales now is more mainstream than it has been previously, though, Ellen? It can't be yeah, really definitely. called a periphery issue anymore, can it? Um, yeah, definitely. It's moved towards the mainstream. I mean, we've seen with the mess that they're making in Westminster at the moment, people are starting to look at independence as a real idea which is maybe something we haven't seen it to this extent before. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with Ben, really. You know, we've got, we've got a way to go. We've got ideas to build. We've got things that we need to decide on, on how Wales is going to be as an independent nation. But I think we'll be stronger for it. I think, you know, we're, we're well on the way there. Brexit is definitely when when it actually happens, whichever way it actually does happen, whether it will be the wake up call that we expect it to be or whether by then we'll be so tired that every shock is just going over our heads. I, I'm not sure, to be honest. So I, I wouldn't place all my bets on Brexit actually providing the final shock that we need. I mean, Ellen's exactly right. Brexit may well be um, very tiring. I think that we will be looking at Northern Ireland and having lived in the Republic for a few years, I know that the young people there would love to see a united Ireland and they will, much as they did in uh, very recent referendums, you know, they will come from far and wide to help. And so what happens there will be a, a really large part of what's happening to Scotland and Wales as well. And I think one of the great things we can do as members of Yes Cymru uh, is, is reach out and really help. But I think that constitutionally, we in Wales will have a way to go. But as soon as this stuff starts happening, the momentum will build just as quickly as it has this year on seeing even more of the many uh, hyperbolic terms around how bad Westminster have been. But they've also just been completely arrogant and ignorant and simply unfair in the way that they have not dealt with this year's crises. From up here in Scotland, what always um, what strikes me looking down at, at the the, d the debate in, in Wales is that if you're looking at whether something's made it to the mainstream, there's two different ways to look at it. You can look at where, where the polling is, or you can look at what it's doing to, to partisan discourse um, within the political party. So on the one hand, you might think, Wales is at a different place because support for independence is a little bit lower. In, the, in some of the polling we've done, we've been asking about support for independence on a 21-point on a scale that runs from minus 10, completely opposed, to plus 10, a completely supportive. And if you're looking at those people that are kind of 8, 9, or 10 on, on that scale, then you're looking at about 13% in Wales. And even if you add up all the positive numbers, you're looking at about just a quarter of the Scottish electorate supportive. So on the one hand, you might think it's in a completely different place from the debate in Scotland. But what's, what's interesting and what's not happening here is that you are getting the debate about independence occurring within more than just one political party. So... Up here, you've got, you've got the SNP, a major political party, advocating independence. And you've got 
smaller parties advocating independence. But the other pan-UK parties, Labour, the Conservatives, Lib Dems, have not shown much of a willingness to engage with it and to treat it as anything other than a complete and utter disaster. Whereas in Wales, what you can see is that the, the, the Welsh Labour Party has been so fundamentally different on this issue to the Scottish Labour Party. I mean, it always approached devolution differently than the Scottish Labour Party did, but they're far more inventive in terms of talking about how things might be different, imagining a different, a different union and a kind of also ambivalent unionism that surfaces within the Welsh Labour Party that will stand them in better stead, I think, than what's happening in the and the Scottish Labour Party. And it, you know, just thinking in terms of Mark Drakeford's comments last summer about kind of ambivalent unionism um, and, a, and a sense of, of seeing the union not necessarily as sort of sacrosanct or some unmitigated good, um, but as something that, you know, take a kind of wait and see attitude. And there you're seeing it just in a completely different position. It's almost like with Brexit, the way that UKIP forced the Conservative Party to, to take a particular stance on Europe. So you can have a, a, an independence party like Plaid. So it's not the only party that's talking about, about independence. It's made the leap over into different parties in a way that just hasn't happened in Scotland. So from a polling perspective, it might seem behind, but I think from a party discourse perspective, it actually seems ahead. Obviously, there's been a, an increase in Labour members who support independence in Wales. But do you think it's ever likely that Labour will back independence in, in Wales? I really liked Elsa's term there, ambivalent unionism, because much of the ambivalent unionism that goes on is also triangulation around political success. Briefly, I can go over the polling figures within the party that we've had, uh, and they aren't, you know, polls commissioned by us, they are the regular reliable rhythm of polls that have come from Cardiff University. And since 2017, the numbers have doubled for support uh, within the party. Welsh Labour supporters have gone from around about 20% to regularly since August last year now being hovering around 40%. Now that's uh, combining the multi-scale, the, the 1 to 100 point uh, question that guests asked as well as the uh, yes or no simple independence or not question. So currently if we want to be more precise we can say that support is anywhere between 33% and 41% within the party. You know, last August, it actually measured at 45%. That's a huge number of Welsh Labour members. And if the leadership want to not only park their tanks, as the phrase goes in Wales that we use so often, on Plaid's doorstep, then they're going to need to actually grapple with this issue far more publicly and far more definitely that's not just on a, on a political triangulation level, that's if they want their membership to be happy. 40% aren't going to go anywhere suddenly. And that, you know, let's say that the range on that means that that 30% that might be a rump or a base support for Indie Wales within Welsh Labour, that's still 30%. That's still huge. You know, that's a big damn number. It's a big, large part of the party that will now... <laughs> not going to change their mind. You know, they're not suddenly going to become ultra-unionists in the next few years. So what that really means for Welsh Labour is how do they see themselves being electorally successful? And a lot of different polling puts them in need of a coalition come next year. What do they do with that triangulation? 
I'm willing to bet that not next year, but in between next year and 2026, some of the leadership, as they currently stand in the cabinet of the Welsh Government, will come out. Whether it's as Carwin Jones has come out for a confederal UK, or whether it's indie full and proper, that isn't necessarily what I can say. But I would say that if they don't go for confederal, they'd be mad. And that's a, a kind, that some people say it's a kind of independence, um, because of course it would then have the rolling question of every 20 years, should we remain part of this confederal union? Do you think the failure of Scottish Labour to really tackle this constitutional issue has was the reason for their initial uh, downturn and their subsequent inability to return to their previous levels? I would say it's not the sole reason, no. I'd say that uh, the Scottish people got quite fed up with Labour after a fairly long time of trying to be Labour. Uh, there's a brilliant video of a committed communist who had a massive rant when he lost a seat or he lost a nomination or something. And he, you know, he, he ripped into loads of local Labour people. But then at the end, because they were the only option, he said, and now that I can't vote for me, I will still have to vote for Labour. And I think Scottish people got sick of that feeling. And the SNP promised them complete renewal. And when you look at the manifestos, the SNP are still often to the left of Scottish Labour, at least to my eyes. And I'm not obviously a, an expert like Elsa is. But the only thing I'd add there is that when you look at the election where Labour really lost, and I've looked at this uh, just for a small article for the IWA here in Wales, it looks to me like Scottish Labour got blindsided. Elsa, what do you think the route out of this mire is for Scottish Labour? Can you ever see them backing independence in Scotland? In terms of what happened, we, you know, we have all the data from the Scottish election survey. One thing I, I will say is that you could see that Scottish Labour were in trouble well before the 2014 referendum. Polling from 2012-2013 shows they'd already lost that perception of being able to stand up for Scotland. So not just the best party able to stand up for Scotland as they once might have been seen, but not even really able to do it at all. So the current situation is kind of a long time coming, I think. We have data from the 2019 election, which, quite, which is quite helpful because it tells us that three things were responsible for causing people to defect from Labour. So people who had voted Labour in 2017, but defected from them in 2019. Three things mattered. Corbyn was profoundly unpopular in 2019 compared to his role in 2017. So if you didn't like him, you were far more likely to leave. The perceived economic competence of the party mattered. But the other thing was attitudes to independence. I think this is really important because it's not the case that Labour is just losing yes voters now. I mean, they did lose a whack of yes voters in, in 2015 and have come, continued to kind of drop them over time. This isn't just a case of losing yes voters. It's, it's losing people who are not opposed to independence right now. So if we think in terms of things that can cause parties to come um, find themselves against the rocks in a way, uh, it's a you know a loss of a demographic base or a socioeconomic base. It's an unpopular leader. It's failure to read a policy mood, but also a failure to capture a policy shift. And I think that explains what's going on with Scottish Labour. It has been a complete failure to capture 
the policy mood shift that's occurred in Scotland on independence, and not just on support for independence, but on just absence of hostility to independence. So again, this kind of um, ambivalent unionism point, but also about the absence of a hostility to holding another referendum. So we do know that parts of the electorate don't want there to be another referendum, but there's rather more who want there to be a referendum than you might think. And it's particularly true of Labour supporters. So I think Labour has kind of misread the Scottish electorate's current view, but has also misread its own supporters. So it's misread the people who are even staying with them now, not just, you know, left them in, in 2019. So we know that a quarter of current Labour voters want there to be a referendum within a year, and a third want there to be a referendum within five. And then if you're looking at some of the recent polling in Scotland, um, we also know that 42% of current Labour voters are people who backed Labour in 2019. So people who stayed with them in 2019, 42% say they would vote yes. It's up to parties to pick a policy that they believe in and try and, and convince the electorate to follow them. It's quite refreshing to have a party that isn't slavishly following public opinion. But I think the issue with Scottish Labour is that they are so out of touch with majority opinion, but also with their own supporters, that this, this puts them in a very difficult place. And in terms of what the knock-on consequences of this are, it's, it's quite interesting, because I think this continued, what I've been calling muscular unionism, coming out of, of Scottish Labour, does, is going to lose them votes. And if the case, if they are continually in this kind of weakened position, then it's going to have a knock-on consequence of the ability of Labour to form a UK government. If, you know, Labour is opposed to the holding of a, of a referendum, you might think that's an obstacle to a referendum taking place. But if having that view makes it less likely that they're actually going to form a UK government, then in a way that opposition is almost academic in terms of strategy and process. Uh, Ellen, what does an independent Wales look like to you? Uh, especially, what does, an, what does a post-independence post Britain look like to members of Yes Cymru? I wouldn't like to speak for the whole of Yes Cymru. One of the things that's really important to me is that we recognise that an independent Wales the day after independence looks much the same as, an independent, as a non-independent Wales the day before independence. It's just that we have the powers ourselves to change it so what we need to do now is start working now towards the Wales that we want to see so that the day before independence we're almost there and the day after we're just able to reach our full potential it's really important I think that we take this as a journey that we start making changes now and we realize that we can't be given independence we either are independent or we're not because I think that the biggest risk for us with independence is that we obtain an independent nation state, but we don't realize our own independence and we end up with a kind of a quasi-independence that's much harder to call out than you would otherwise be able to do where actually, you know, the powers that be in Westminster are still controlling our choices, our decisions within the wider world. What does an independent Wales look like to me? It looks like a country that's able to choose, to direct and to be who it who the people of that country choose for it to be and that's the important thing but also that work starts now it doesn't start the day after independence and i think people need to start 
realising and working towards that idea, I think. To us in Labour for Indie Wales, we want socialism through independence. You know, these are the things that different groups tend to articulate. For us in Labour for Indie Wales, we want a socialist Wales. For us, so long as Wales is a fairer country, to us that's a nice vision of a future Wales. Do you think socialism is, is possible within the current UK as it's structured? If we're going to stay with that within the UK, it's difficult for me to see how that can be as effective as it would be with an independent nation. I mean, there's loads of stuff that we can do now that we're not doing that would cause change and work towards that. But I think we can do a lot more than we have been doing. But I think it's got it would be a very difficult job within the whole UK system as it is. Ellen's spot on, except I'd go further. I'd say no. Socialism is not possible in the current UK setup. England votes Tory, not for economic reasons. I think what we have in Wales that's different from uh, from the UK is though we have a very strong um, idea of community. It's not necessarily different from the whole of the UK, but I think what makes it different in Wales is that we're small enough that if we build on this idea of community that we have here, that we can create a voice and we can work within the structure that we we have now. One thing I hear a lot in the independence movement and talking about is this idea of we should be more like Finland, we should be more like Ireland. Actually, what we need to do is take a few steps back and think of we should be more like Wales and what what does that mean? And, and for me, I, I think the idea that we have such strong communities means that even within any structure, we, ha we have a crack in the system there where we can grow a response to our daily lives that is much more socialist than you would get working from the top down. And I think that's, that's where our chance is really, is that we can make this different by working from the bottom up. In a way, that's where we'll get to independence before the referendum. Because if we work with our communities, if we work with the people of Wales in creating, and, and it is really hard work, but if we work in creating this idea of what Wales is, what a Welsh Wales is, and I'm not talking language, I'm talking um, you know, um, that we have this idea of who we are, um, then I think we'll, we can create this uh, socialist response, regardless of who's in government. In his answer, Ben said that England always votes Tory. Elsa, do you think that's the case? Do you think the English identity has a big impact on people voting Conservative? And also as a, as a side question to that, what, from your work, do you think uh, English identifying people and British identifying people in England think of the, the Scottish and Welsh independence campaigns? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, colleagues in Cardiff and Edinburgh have been running the Future of England survey since 2011. And every once in a while, when we, have, when we manage to find extra money, we, we do parallel polling in, in Scotland and in Wales. So we, we have a sense of how identity relates to attitudes to two unions, the domestic union in the UK, but also the, the external European union how identity relates to those two unions across, well, we know more about across Britain, but we have some polling on, on Northern Ireland as well. And there's some, some really interesting patterns. So we know that uh, what we're calling Debo anxiety, so concern about, about the current constitutional settlement 
is linked to Euroscepticism. So the more Euroskeptic you are, the more devo-anxious you are. And we know that both of those relate to English national identity and so are negatively related with British identity. But what's, what's interesting for us is that British identity aligns with very different attitudes depending on where in Britain you are. So if you're in, in Scotland or in Wales, British identifiers are more likely to be Eurosceptic. And in England, British identifiers are less likely to be Eurosceptic. So put another way, if you prioritize your Scottish or your Welsh identity, you're more likely to uh, have a positive view of the EU. But if you prioritize your English identity in England, you're more likely to have a negative view of the EU. But you can tell I'm, I'm speaking faster because I'm getting excited. But if you're, if you're looking at constitutional attitudes domestically, then actually we find that territorial identities work in the same way. So if you prioritize your Scottish identity or your Welsh identity or your English identity, you are more likely to say that there's something not quite right about the union at the moment, and you're more likely to either support independence or be what we would call a form of kind of ambivalent unionist. So we have a range of questions. We have that minus 10 plus 10 question. We have questions about independence that just say, yes, no, do you want independence for your bit? Do you want independence for the other bits? What do you think? But we also recently asked a question that made people choose between, do you want independence for your bit? No, you want, it's a priority to keep everything as it is. So a kind of status quo option. But we also had an option that said, uh, well, you don't necessarily want independence for your bit, but you're perfectly happy if one or more of the other bits go their own way. And we find that the figures for that response, that kind of ambivalent unionist response, those figures are really high in England. So 36% of the English electorate, when we were polling, answered that, that kind of ambivalent unionist option. That is the same if you're looking at people who prioritize their English national identity. But you've also got, if you're combining the kind of ambivalent unionist and the pro-independence people, then you're at more than 40% of the electorate in England and more than 40% of the electorate in Wales and almost 60% of the electorate in Scotland. And all those figures increase if you're looking at people who prioritize their English national identity, their Scottish national identity, and their Welsh identity. So what's interesting for us studying England is to see those issues where the English behave very differently and where the, the kind of underlying patterns are very different from what we see in other parts of Britain. And those, those themes or concepts where the English electorate behaves very much like the electorate in Scotland and in Wales. Ellen and Ben, Ellen first, what, what do you see as the next steps that the Welsh independence movement has to take in order to progress its cause? Do you think the independence movement to become successful needs a applied Cymru government in Wales? The first question I'd say that the next thing the independence movement needs to do is uh, look at how do they bring in a broader base of, of Welsh voters. 
um, what is it in people's lives that is affected and would be better with independence and how do we pass that message on to them? To the question, do I think we need applied Cymru government in Cardiff? Um, that would depend on the other parties and whether or not they choose to support independence. At the end of the day, you know, there's going to be a point, especially with a government like the one we have in Westminster at the moment, where to support the union would be supporting something that would damage the people of Wales. I mean, it's happening already, could have happened more so during COVID. Luckily, you know, um, our government has been able to create some different choices. Um, which have protected us. There's no going against that. The Labour government have made choices that have protected the people of Wales. That has been harder. We've been on lockdown longer, but it has protected us. And there will be a point in the future where they have to make choices like that again more and more so. And should they go with the union, then they're going to be making choices that hurt the people of Wales and they'll have to explain why. You know, why Why would you choose England over Wales if you are the Welsh Government? Could it happen with Plaid Cymru in government? I don't know. Uh, without Plaid Cymru in government? I don't know. Only if the other parties would be willing to change, which they should. I mean, I would say that, but they should. <laughs> I think Ellen's raised some really good points. And I, I think one of the ways that we do get back, uh, do get to any kind of Indie Wales, um, relates to what she said before around a Welsh Wales being developed through grassroots movements. Now, um, in my local branch, we do regular litter picks, and every time we do one, uh, more people come along. And even if we're just walking by people, they ask us, you know, what are you doing and who are you? And we're wearing our Yes Gumry t-shirts and whatnot. And they go, oh, good on you. And then they just carry on for a pint or whatever. But the more we do those sorts of on the ground things, the more it, it grows. And I think articulation of what it looks like can come from both that and also a, a proper scurs canadlithol, a proper national conversation of what Wales wants. And that doesn't have to be necessarily led by a government or a party, but it could be. And I think another step to get us closer is actually having the proper conversation, having it out, if you will, within Welsh Labour properly having it out at some point now i think it's probably too close to 2021 to really kind of invite the party to start any kind of big conversation at the minute but i do think come 2022 late or 2023 welsh labor has to have the conversation and they have to have it in a big way and you know as labor friendly wells we're ready for it but beyond that um whether it's a coalition government or applied Cymru government I, I do think that, for example, if there is a coalition government next year and Plaid and Labour come to some sort of agreement and Plaid says, look, you know, we want X, Y, Z and we have to plan for a referendum. I think the campaign itself, much like it did in Scotland, will see a greater involvement in our democracy. Is there anything that Yes Cymru can learn from Yes Scotland? or the broader independence movements learn from each other? There's a lot we can learn from each other. It's always good to have those conversations and, you know, as with everything, together we're stronger and it's good to learn from each other. But what we have to remember is that we are different and if we are to create successful movement in Wales, it has to be a Welsh one, it has to come from the people of Wales and it has to respond to them. So we can't just duplicate without a doubt, without a shadow, without our relationship 
with the other nations of the United Kingdom, an equal relationship, it is so important. Elsa? You know, just thinking in terms of research, one thing that, one thing that makes the Scottish referendum stand out, if you're looking at the kind of totality of independence referendums or sovereignty referendums, uh, is the length of the campaign. You know, referendums get a bad rap because they provide insufficient opportunities for deliberation. They can be proxies on uh, proxy votes on how you feel about the government of the day with little ability to learn over the course of the campaign. Um, but one thing that is absolutely clear if you're looking at the Scottish referendum from a comparative kind of referendums perspective is that the length of that campaign facilitated a level of engagement that isn't seen typically in other constitutional referendums. We certainly saw nothing like it in terms of two referendums in, in Quebec. So we know that, I mean, I'm trying to pick the best indicator of, of what happened there, but it's not just the, the number of people that were rushing onto the electoral rolls, but also we asked people questions about subjective knowledge, um, three months out from the campaign, then we had a rolling um, uh, campaign wave survey, then we surveyed them again right after the campaign, then three months out, then a year after that. And what we saw was not just people's subjective levels of knowledge increased over the course of the campaign, but levels of political interest also increased, both on the issue of the constitution, but also on Scottish politics and on UK politics. But the other thing, is that we were able to, to look at policy knowledge. So we measured that as an awareness of what was actually in the, the Scottish government's white paper. And we also have evidence of policy learning over the course of the campaign. And that was particularly true of, of women and younger members of the electorate. They learned more than the average voter over the course of the campaign. And the other thing we know is that we asked all kinds of questions about where people went for information. Did you go to the Scottish government, UK government, Yes Scotland, Better Together, the mainstream media, social media, your friends, your family, whatever. And so we have all this evidence about where people went for information. But what was fascinating about the referendum was that if you look at the youngest members of the electorate, and remember the franchise was changed for 2014 so that 16 and 17 year olds uh, were able to vote. If you look at the youngest members of the electorate, they were the most, I guess, diverse or ecumenical in their way of looking for information. So they looked everywhere. They looked for information from the UK government, Scottish government, both campaigns, uh, their friends, the press, social media, and on and on and on. They were, in many ways, ideal deliberative citizens over the course of that campaign. Now, whether that campaign has had a, a medium-term uh, effect on engagement in Scotland is a little bit um, more difficult to measure. Turnout certainly has fallen back down to earth. And when you ask people about their own levels of engagement, what we saw from the very beginning, like immediately after the referendum, and still see now, is that yes, a portion of the electorate is much more engaged, but it is almost exclusively those who want to change. So yes, voters, have, as a group, remained much more engaged in politics than have no voters, who were more likely to believe that Scotland would go back to normal 
and they themselves, their, their own levels of engagement have gone back to normal. So the electorate as a whole is more engaged, but it's largely because one group within it is much more active than they used to be. For me, you know, just with my political science hat on, that's the lesson of the Scottish campaign. Have a long campaign and be clear about what you want. Issue a big, huge document that sets out exactly uh, exactly what your intent is. You can't predict what you'll be able to negotiate, but you can at least tell the voters what you're asking for and what you're looking for. And just very briefly, one possible negative, make sure you're comfortable with your currency choices uh, in terms of independence, because that's one thing we do know made, made an impact on, uh, on voters. Elsa, what do you see as the major stumbling blocks towards Welsh and Scottish independence, the major obstacles? Well, I guess, I guess there, if you were trying to map it out, I guess you would say there's two. One would be procedural and one would be kind of popular, popular consent. So procedural in the sense that um, the SNP has long advocated independence through democratic means, through a, through a referendum. So it's not just give us a majority of votes in an election and woo, UDI. It's you know, there will, be a, there will be a referendum. So the holding of a referendum um, is now seen as an essential step along the way. So that itself then becomes an obstacle if you find you're facing difficulties in being, um, being able to, to call one. You know, I talked earlier about Scottish Labour's hostility to holding one much, and the UK Labour's much more kind of muscular unionism um, coming out uh, much more so than than when Corbyn was leader. I think that's one area where Corbyn read the Scottish electorate and the and Scottish position fairly well, actually. Um, what, what's clear, though, is that that's at a disconnect with what the Scottish electorate thinks. So it's not just the fact that people who want independence think Scotland should be able to hold the referendum. There's clear majority support in Scotland, 55% support, for the ability of the Scottish government to call a referendum if it wants one, um, versus a third who say that the UK should have the authority to let one happen and the rest are, are don't know. But what we also know um, from recent polling is that of those who say the, Scot the UK government should have the authority to hold one, it's because they, they themselves don't want a referendum. So two thirds say it's because I don't want one that I think the UK should have authority over it. So it's not I think the UK should have authority because that's where power lies, or that's how the line, what the lines of legislative competence are. It's, I, I think the UK government should have authority because the UK government will block it, which is a very different kind of thing. There's a, even if you're leaving aside the issue of being able to hold one, there's the complication of timing. Uh, so the SNP is under pressure from its own supporters to hold it sooner rather than later. Um, but you know, I think they, they want to try and take the electorate with them. And if that's the case, then the electorate as a whole is a bit more cautious on, uh, on timing. And that bleeds into, uh, away from kind of procedural points and more kind of popular support. So in, in Quebec, they used to talk about the winning conditions. So after that close loss in 1995, the Parti Québécois said, look, we're not going to hold another referendum unless we have these winning conditions and there's no point in calling one if we don't have them and it's a clear lead in the polls favorable economic conditions and a, and a popular leader and in scotland they've got a popular leader they have a lead 
I would not say it would qualify as a clear lead. It's still most polls, it's within margin of error of 50-50. Of but I think one thing those winning conditions miss out is also you need a clear plan. Uh, you need the specifics nailed down because as we saw in the campaign, a lack of specifics or a lack of clarity, particularly around currency, mattered. And it also plays into what we know is an underlying kind of feature of referendum voting, which is the importance of uncertainty and risk. The fewer the details you have written down, the more uncertainty and risk are likely to, to play a role. So there's two obstacles. One is the holding of a referendum. One is getting the authority to call one or, or, or getting an agreement on calling one. One is satisfying um, your own supporters about the timing of that. And then one is, you know, the last tiny little obstacle is, is then winning, is then winning the referendum. So the obstacles I see alongside many that Elsa mentioned are specifically in Wales, stagnation in leadership. There's a promise being made within Welsh Labour in 2018 that the current First Minister would only serve five years. If that promise is broken, or if there is some form of, uh, as has been suggested, rolling First Ministership, possibly between parties or possibly between peoples, then there could be stagnation and there could be massive indecision, which could be a huge problem, not just for uh, the indie movement, but for Wales itself and, and the Welsh Government. Brexit, and this is the final point, does possibly cause one of the greatest clearances of Welsh life alongside the destruction of the valleys under Thatcher, it could well cause the emptying out of small hill farms, uh, especially up here uh, and further northwest. And that's down to the agricultural bill that is currently going through the House of Lords in Westminster. If people are forced to leave their communities and big farming corps, big agro, buy up that land, then many of those communities will be decimated in the literal sense, you know, one in 10 people surviving there as the people from there. And that could be a huge problem. Uh, I, I really do see that as a concern. I think um, Van makes a really good point there about the agricultural bill and uh, the importance that we recognise the impact that could have on communities in Wales with the negative impact. And it goes to show how important it is that the Welsh Government now, the Assembly now, shows that um, there's a purpose to the Senate, that there's a purpose to the devolution that we have now. They're able to stand up and protect our people and our communities. And I think the Agricultural Bill is the best place to start because it is a massive, massive issue. More than anything else, I think what the independence movement needs to do for the people of Wales is give them confidence. If we can give the people of Wales confidence that they can be Welsh people within their own Welsh nation states, make their own lives better and that their voices are heard and that their decisions are carried through, then, you know, that they'll go for independence. But to start with, devolution needs to show, be shown to be working. It needs to be shown to uh, be strong enough to protect us and for them to be fighting way above their weight to, to protect their communities, to protect their people. It started to happen with COVID. It needs to happen on a really 
deep level within governments where things like the agricultural bill are just stamped out and that they fight tooth and nail to reject these kind of things that are such such a risk to our communities do you think the country the nations of the of the uk are better off for these debates that we're having about nationhood about independence about our constitutional future absolutely can we say now that less people are democratically involved because of these questions no statistically more and more people are getting involved whether you look at the yes company membership or like we were saying before and elsa was mentioning the the massive rise in interest of people in scotland around the campaign and the referendum these questions are forging the demos in each country they're forging democracies better and better i think we're absolutely better and in the end and i would say this when we're all independent countries we'll be better friends for it yes i think a healthy debate is healthy um for people to be able to imagine their future understand who they are understand what's affecting their lives understand how their choices are made that can only be a good thing and the only way that that can happen is if we have these conversations about what our lives are what we're happy with and what we're not yeah i mean uh i i i think it's absolutely valuable to have a conversation about what the state is for um what the state should look like what your kind of first principles are about um about the state what's the appropriate territorial scale at which to deliver um certain kinds of of policy i i think it's good to have that conversation one one thing i would say is that it's it's also good to stop <laughs> having the conversation so I mean, it, it does feel a little bit in Scotland as a, however, I, I mean, I'm, you know, I, this is my bread and butter stuff. This is what I do. Every, you know, I study people's attitudes towards constitutional politics. Obviously, I think it's, um, it's important. And, and if we keep talking about it, it, it keeps me out of trouble. But I mean, even from that position of, of being predisposed to find it interesting, I, I do feel at times in Scotland, and this is also true, you know, I lived in, I was in Canada, where I'm from, in the in the 1990s. There, there is a point at which you do think, okay, right, let, let's just park it for a little bit. Once you feel you found some sort of resolution, I don't think we're at that that resolution stage. But there's an awful lot that's not being talked about for having this other constitutional discussion. So I do think it's incredibly valuable to have it. But I, I don't think it's important to have it for the sake of having the endless discussion. I think it's, it's useful if we're getting somewhere in terms of outlining what everyone's preferences are and then kind of moving on and and talking about other things so in in one of its many commissions on the constitution a, a while ago in Canada they had the Spicer Commission and in my office there's a, a giant red button that people would wear if they were interested in constitutional politics which sounds tragic but and it's it was a picture of a train and it was the constitutional train is is coming and I so I, I do think it's exciting that the constitutional train is coming and it's it's on the move but I I would also like it to go away um, having having led to something you know I think the conference I think the conversation is essential I think we also need to get somewhere with it um, and see some meaningful change rather than rather than endlessly debating the same kind of things will we hold a referendum won't we hold a referendum because we are you know, we really are not talking about an awful lot of stuff that really does matter in Scotland. Now, no one's talking about, you know, on the ground policy right now because we're in the middle of a pandemic. But, 
even before then, I think sometimes it does crowd out other issues that are that are equally important and for many people are far more uh, far more important than than which which representatives we elect and, and which legislature they sit in. Uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all our guests and uh, ask them what is the best way to get in touch with you all. So Ben? On Twitter, just my name, it's at Ben Gwalchmai. Diolch Ben. Ellen? Yeah, Twitter again, and it's my name as well, Ellen Howell. <laughs> at Diolch. Ellen Howell, nice and easy. Diolch Ellen, uh, and Ailsa? Yeah, Twitter as well, so it's the same. It's um, it's my name, Ailsa, A-I-L-S-A uh, underscore Henderson. Uh, well, thank you all so much for uh, appearing on tonight's show. If you like what you've heard, please be sure to check out our blog at Medium at Hereith Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Hereith Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Hereith Blog. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.